Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Judith Wood, an immigration lawyer from Los Angeles whose work with refugees and asylum seekers is the subject of the new biopic, St. Judy, in which she's played by Michelle Monaghan. Directed by Sean Hannish and co-starring Alfred Molina, Liam Lubani, Ben Schnetzer, Gabriel Bateman, Alfred Woodard, and Common... The film just became available for rental and purchase on iTunes and other digital platforms. Judy picked Vive Sa Vie, Jean-Luc Godard's 1962 drama starring Anna Karina as Nana, a young woman whose determination to become a famous actor leads her instead to prostitution and an undignified death. It's a short, sharp, devastating film that's all the more powerful for the reserved, almost clinical aesthetic Godard employs to tell Nana's story. This episode's a little different format-wise, since we almost immediately segued into a conversation about Judy's own life and work. So don't expect the usual deep dive into the film, but give it a listen anyway. I think you'll be interested in what she has to say. This is someone else's movie. It's kind yeah. of a weird movie for someone to choose. Well, I remember it's... seeing it when I was very young, mm-hmm. and um, I was married to my first husband, and we were making films together, actually. Good. That didn't make it. And he movie. loved Godard, so we'd go to see every Godard movie. Um, the thing I liked about this movie was that she kind of airlifted herself out of her life and s- invented a new identity, even though she was not successful mm-hmm. and met with a tragic end. She still had the courage to airlift herself out of her life. And so that is a theme that I have um, really followed in my work. Uh, as a lawyer, I meet all these women who have airlifted themselves out of their lives, literally, literally left impossible situations. And the immigration uh, authorities in Los Angeles think that, oh, these women are just abusing the system and they're just, you know, playing the game and they can get here. They said they're abused. So, you know, then they get a son and then they bring over the abuser, la, 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 la. Not true. It's really hard for a woman who's been abused and trapped and whatnot to airlift herself out of her life because one of the signature emblems of such a situation is that um, she, her ego is, is, uh, is crippled. Yeah. Her ego is crippled. So to get that strength, to actually gather the strength and leave, and often with children, it's Herculean, really. Yeah, it occurs to me that we're seeing it all over again now. Uh, the, the common response to any refugee crisis like the one in Syria that's been unfolding for a couple of years is that, oh, all these people are scamming us. And it just feels to me like the only way you can have that understanding of a person, you can have that take on someone you don't know, is to have never experienced hardship in your life. So we have all these incredibly comfortable people saying, well, these people aren't really suffering or they're not really in danger. They're just scamming us for a better life. And it always comes back to they want what I have. Right, like the fear that take what I have. yeah, the fear that the other is going to come in and, take and unseat you, but yeah, as you say, these these women, these people, uh, Anna Karina's character, they are all leaving behind something that is so horrific or unpleasant or oppressive that the only choice is to abandon everything. I mean, in in Vive Savi, we don't really get a sense other than the fact that she has a child that she won't discuss and won't see. We never really find out where she came from. We just know it wasn't pleasant enough that she's 
abandoned everything else to chase her own And the story. lawyer the, in the movie also has to abandon everything. Eventually she... She doesn't exactly abandon her child, but she makes a choice. Oh, in... In, in the movie. In your movie, in St. Yeah, Judy. she basically chooses her work over her child. Yeah? When she says to the child, I was watching it last night again, and she, she says, well, is that what you want? To the son, when the son says that the father wants him to live with him full time. Um, that was a particularly moving moment for me, because when I started law school, my son went to live with his dad. So for a year, which is a decision I regret, but he wanted to do mm -hmm. it. He came back, but still, I regret making that decision. Yeah. I still think I should have more or less held on to him. Maybe not. You know, it's hard to say what would have happened if you had done this or that yeah. or the other thing. Well, things turned out better for you than they do for. But uh, in this movie, Nana, yeah. she leaves her child mm -hmm. and she leaves her husband. You know, because she cannot fit into this mold of whatever it is that she's supposed to fit into. And that, I'm sure she doesn't want to end up a dead prostitute. <laughs> Who does? <laughs> uh, Nevertheless, but, um, she, made an, she made an attempt to have another identity. And all of these women whom I meet every single day of the week, really, every day, have made a choice to leave something and jump into the abyss of the unknown. It's very brave. Yeah. And one doesn't do that unless one is driven to do it. Well, exactly. If you have any other option... Besides leaving everything you know, surely you would take that other option. And, and the idea that people are constantly fleeing or constantly abandoning terrible circumstances for an unknown future. And with, yeah, with no guarantee that there's anything better on the other side. Just that the and thing, it might be a lot worse, yeah, which it turns out in this film. The thing that you're enduring stops, but then there's another thing. The other thing is the dynamic between male and female. Now, you're male. And I think you're a very nice man. I try. So far as Thank I know. Thank you. But there's always, you know, as comes out now in this Me Too movement, um, the power dynamic. Yeah. So a woman like the movie depicts, you know, she's married and her role, really her basic role is to please the husband in all respects. Mm -hmm. And um, she may not be able to please him or to go on pleasing him. Obviously, she pleased him for a little while or they wouldn't be together. Yeah. She may not be able to do it forever, and you don't really know what type of abuse she sustains as a result of not being able to please the man. So that's a basic dynamic in the male-female thing, regardless of whether it involves an immigrant or not. Mm -hmm. Can the woman sustain the role of pleasing the male? Yeah. Can she sustain it for life? Maybe, maybe not. Can she sustain the abuse that happens? Invariably, there are different levels of abuse. It might be, you know, it might be rather innocuous. It could be deadly. Can she sustain the pain of that abuse and still, and still, after the after he beats her, after he rapes her, can she still try to please him? That's the basic question for any woman. After he abuses her, no matter what country you're talking about, can she go on loving him? Yeah, it's. And should she, right? I mean, does she want to? What circumstance leads a person... And what choices does she have? Exactly. Now, with these women that are coming from Central America or wherever, you know, really all over the world, they don't really have much of a choice. It's a big unknown. I mean, it seems like the choice is to live in a tent forever with your kid in diapers at the border of Mexico and the United States, which is not a good choice. Or worse yet, 
I've heard of even worse, where women who are pregnant, they're um, criminalized, put into federal detention centers, have to give birth with shackles, and then the baby is taken away. Jesus. I mean, so you're jumping from, really, from the frying pan into the fire. Yeah. But apparently it has to be so bad, what you're leaving, that you're willing to do that in the hope, some thin shred of hope that you'll somehow make it to the other side. Yeah. I mean, this... this You've you've had a film made about your work that's out there for people to see. Does cinema help? Does the idea of showing people where where refugees, where other where the other people are coming from, do you think it helps with sympathy yeah, and with the, empathy? Yeah, because the the um, the, uh, the woman who plays the Afghan lady, she's very human, and she she's by the end of the film, she's certainly not a stranger. Oh no no no. She she she's very close to you. She's a really good actress, and she becomes extremely sympathetic and you identify with her even if your circumstances are completely different everybody including men escape something and have to redefine themselves that's largely what life is about constantly redefining yourself no matter what sex you happen to be sure and culturally too the um i think america canada north the west is more open to the idea of people reinventing themselves which is weird that it's you know second acts and all that which is weird that they're still so hostile to people who are coming looking for a better life. For that very purpose. Yeah. And, and, and reinventing yourself is really what the meaning of this country is about from its inception. I mean, the history of this country sure, is yeah. about people coming here to reinvent themselves. They sometimes did horrific things in that process, like commit genocide yep. and own slaves and on and on, and burn women, blah, blah, blah. Nevertheless, the good part of it was they were reinventing themselves and reinventing a whole culture and a whole, a whole world. The new world is the new world. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, what I'm, does it mean when you think about that phrase, the new world? That was a big deal in those days. Yeah, the new world. I assume it's about. It wasn't just physical. No, no, spiritual. Right. Well, I mean, there were Puritans who settled. These are people who believed that you know the church was too oppressive and they needed to come up with something else. And so it's exactly the same thing unfolding again. Yeah. And it is, this is the new world to those people. And it's those people. They're those people instead of us. Yeah. Because it's, we're here. Yeah, and we didn't. But we weren't here. Yeah, Our ancestors, none of, neither yours nor mine, were here. Christ, no, no, we didn't earn this spot. Um, it's pure luck that anyone's born anywhere. Uh, or bad luck or good luck. And the, the, the thing that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a dual citizen. I, I'm Canadian and American, and so I get to watch all this horrible stuff perpetrated in my name. And uh, you vote against it, and you just all you do is despair. That you know, it's it's um, it's common speech in the film, right? We didn't start as ICE; we started as services. INS was supposed to help people, and now somehow it's been perverted. And they blame post nine eleven, but it's clearly ramped up since then. Well, I don't think people really pay attention. I mean, now, first of all, during his campaign, he made this salute, the SS salute, and said he's going to have deportation armies. And people think that the deportation armies are going to stop at the door of citizenship. That's not what happened in the 1930s and the 40s. Plenty of German citizens were deported. Sure. Purity tests, right? Yeah. It's all about the idea. And we had it here with Doug Ford and we presumably are our premier uh, who a year ago was elected on a on a an empty populist promise to just basically make Ontario great again, and who immediately started slashing services that have now affected everyone: education, healthcare, transit, all sorts of things. Who've yes, been I've heard about that. crippled, and 
the response is the same every time. Everybody thought that they'd be fine. You know, oh, I didn't know he was going to so come after me. Home. First they came for so-and-so, and then they came for me. Yeah, yeah. And what we see over and over again is the sense that, um, oh, who was it? Megan McCain, of all people, accidentally told the truth yesterday, I think, on The View, and said that the appeal of Trump is that he hates the same things these people hate, that that's what it's all about. And how do you... I mean, the film actually depicts a situation where you make an eloquent argument to uh, to the refugee status of someone and are, are simply told by the judge that, yep, I agree with everything you said, I can't do anything. My hands are tied. How do you turn the tide? How do you fix that? Well, the way I do it, I mean, I have a certain kind of uh, technique. It doesn't really apply to everything, but at least with this job, mm-hmm. the way I do it is when I get a case, and, and really it is just a case. It's not the entire universe nor the entire uh, race of people or an entire country. Mm-hmm. But when I get a case which involves one particular person, I think, well, what is the best, most wonderful thing righteous thing that can be decided in this case, given the circumstances. And then I search the law and I find a way to make that happen. And sometimes it actually works. Yeah, how often? (laughs) Often enough to get a couple of published decisions and people read them and other judges read them. So when I walk into court, it's like, okay, this is a serious advocate. She's not just, you know, shuffling in and shuffling out. She's here because she wants to win. And that, so that if you take it seriously, the judges take it seriously, which I think the the movie brings out beautifully. That uh, Michelle Monaghan takes this whole situation quite seriously, and she's going to definitely try to fight for her client and try to win. And the judges hear that, and it moves them because they're people. They're just people. They may be wearing these black robes and sitting up a little higher than you, but they're just people. Mm-hmm. I, I just have this feeling that, yeah, I have the sense that however hard we try, it's never going to be enough because there's always going to be, you're only ever buying time for one person, which is hugely important to that person, right? The person you're defending, the person you're helping negotiate. Not just one person. There are many people, uh, we just came out from the Little, idiot, little India restaurant and um, there's a whole group, maybe at least 200 people not one person, who I represented, who came from Sri Lanka. Oh, that's wonderful. And I had a published decision called Matter of SP in which the Board of Immigration held that someone can be persecuted on a number of reasons, a number of grounds, and they don't all have to be a protected ground as long as one of them was a protected ground. Right. And that was really a very important ruling, and it affects its more people, at least as many people as this movie that we're talking about, affected. So it's just, if you do the right thing and you tell the truth, it's more likely, actually it's more likely than not, that it will affect a lot of people. Look at Loving versus Virginia. Sure. This white guy marries this black woman whom he's deeply in love with. It's true, it's just one couple, but look what happened. Yeah, it was just that they had to be strong enough to And now to you win. have Gay Pride March, which is directly an offshoot of that. Directly related. I suppose Stonewall was what five years later, right? If Loving was sixty-three, am Mm -hmm. I right about that? Mm -hmm. I'm terrible with years. But it was only one person. But it's all. But it affected thousands of people. Mm -hmm. Have have you seen the film Loving that Jeff Nichols made? Um, I thought it was really remarkable that he spent all the time in the film showing you 
just the wear of it, how long it takes, how much pressure is put on those two people, that they had to be so strong to withstand that and endure. And I think that's what's so scary. Well, because they loved each other. A lot of this whole, all this struggle is fueled by love. It really is. I mean, Common, the guy who plays the the, uh, government lawyer, just wrote a book that I read. Oh, I haven't read that. And it's called Let Love Be the Last Word. Oh, nice. It's a wonderful book, and he talks about this. Love is what really saves us, and that's what really makes us human. We all have a dark side. History certainly exemplifies that. But we can continue to love, regardless yeah. I of guess what's that's going it. on. We can continue to hold up a candle, even in the darkest night. Yeah, here, here in Toronto, um, we had a politician named Jack Layton, who ran the New Democratic Party. He was... He might have been prime minister. He, he died, unfortunately. He got sick and he, he never made it. Uh, I knew him a little bit. He lived across the street, basically, from me mm. in, our, in our old place. And I would see him and, and his wife, Olivia Chow, wandering around the neighborhood. And they knew our old dog. And he said, uh, one of the last things he said, because he constructed his final missive as he was dying, one of the last things he said was, uh, love is stronger than fear. And that's something... I desperately want to believe love is stronger than fear, love is stronger than hate. It's the thing that will, I'm, I'm terribly misquoting him now, but it's the thing that will save us. Mm-hmm. And I have to believe that, even though I kind of feel like I don't right now, because I know everything's cyclical and it just feels like we're at the end of history right well, now. Well, we're in a dark moment. Yeah. We're in a very dark moment. So. All the more need for light. Yeah. Tell me more about love. <laughs> Let's. You know, it, it's the it's the thing that fuels people. It's it's the thing that I think the reason that that mothers take their children out of abusive relationships when they leave, that people flee, that people try something more because they're trying to save some part of themselves, but also the only other children, the, the children are the only other thing that have any meaning to them. That the protective instinct is there. It's it's in a weird way it brings me back to Viva Vi because that's the thing that the film seems to punish Nana for. I think. In that it is, the you know, the obvious parallel in the film is that she goes to see The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is about men judging a woman and sentencing her to death through their apathy, which is exactly what happens to her in different circumstances. And I keep trying, every time I see it, I wonder if there's some moral thread that's being picked at that Yadar himself isn't necessarily conscious of, but it feels almost as though she's being punished for being a bad mother, a neglectful mother. Well, you know, to be a mother is to be responsible for another person's life. That's mm. basically the definition. You're not only bringing a life into the world, but you're supposed to take care of that person as long as you're able to. Mm-hmm. And you're not always able to. Sometimes you're not able to at all for circumstances. And a lot of these refugee women, that just bringing it back to the refugee yeah, yeah. circumstances, a lot of them leave their children at home. They abandon their children one could say, and later their children might be able to come here and might not be able to come here. Mm-hmm. Or they come to the border with their children and their children are taken away. Yeah, that's a So this mother name. thing happens over and over again. And many of these women turn to the only work that's available to them, which is the same work that was available to the woman in my life to live. Simply because, not because they're bad, but because that's the only way to survive. Mm-hmm. Period. You don't speak the language, you don't have any resources, so what is there? And the thing is, the it. things that the, these women have gone through usually causes their soul to basically shatter. Really, you're dealing with shattered souls. Yeah. And it's hard for them to regain consciousness when they're no longer whole. Yeah. 
How? And you can't impose consciousness on another human being. The consciousness has to come from within that person. Yeah, but as an advocate, as a lawyer, you have to find a way to let some of your clients re-traumatize themselves and allow well, themselves to tell really the story, right? what I love about the film, because um, it actually portrays what I actually do. She doesn't tell her her story, although the uncle wants her to. Mm-hmm. She doesn't do that. She listens to her. She sits with her silently and listens. Listens to the silence, you know? Listens yeah. to the person just not talking until the person is able to meet her eyes and convey the pain, even if it's nonverbal at first. And how did you learn to do that? And how did you... How, and what's, what is the weight on you when you're doing something like that? Well, um, I have my own history of suffering in my private life mm-hmm. that happened from the time I was a child until this moment. But I studied method acting as a teenager in New York, which oh, wow. was the w- most wonderful thing that ever happened. I studied with Uta Hagen. Holy shit. Okay, please continue. And now you understand. Yeah, but... She was a, she had, she was a master, and I, would, I played Ophelia for her. But she would t- learn, teach people how to find the key to the scene. It could be a very small thing, but just the key to the scene to open up the character. And I was able to use that with my clients. I would listen to them, and I would find the key that would allow them to come forth with their whole history. So you're... I use that yeah. all the time. So what I learned from Uta Hagen, I use as an immigration lawyer. That's amazing. So it's an intuitive skill. Like you just learn to read people. But uh, she did it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uta Hagen did it to me. She taught me how to use the pain and turn it into art. Yeah, which is, at this point, sort of, you know, that, that language is used as, as the joke now when people are trying, you know, like, uh, oh, you're angry, use that. that that's just thrown away. But it is, absolutely. But it's it, the, it, the it, core people tenet have been of, doing that since they've been uh, drawing, you know, bison on cave walls. Yeah. I had no idea this was coming. That's fat. So when do we get the prequel? When I'd like to actually see that. When did you study in New York? Well, I grew up in New York, and I, I, um, I started taking classes with Uta Hagen when I was 15 years old. Okay. I lied about my age. <laughs> I got into the adult class, and I just started going. And I was in a lot of off-Broadway plays, actually. Who were you? Who was your Hamlet when you were Ophelia? Do you remember? Who was what? Who was your Hamlet when you were Ophelia? Do you remember? Um, I, it was a scene study. It wasn't on, you know, in a full, full on. So no partner, no, you're just working with her? We had partners. There was one one guy that I really loved to work with. Um, but the thing about, um, besides that particular character, though that was really an amazing experience with Uta Hagen, was that she would teach you how to find, as all method actors do, teach you how to find uh, the structure and the purpose of what you were doing, mm-hmm. not just saying lines, but actually giving it life. So... What I would do is I would write out the person's, my character's entire story that wasn't on the page. When I was studying acting, I would write down their whole history that I would imagine what it was. So when I'd walk into a scene, um, whether it was Ophelia or any any other part, I loved playing um, Masha in The Three Sisters. Oh, yeah. Um, I would find out who they were before they happened on that scene. And I played um, Liz Estrada. 
And I played Mother Courage. I played a lot of roles. Wow. I, I worked in the Joseph Papp Theater in New York. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was very important to me to bring that to the courtroom. I, the courtroom, to me, is very much a stage. It is very theatrical. Sure, yeah. And the, the protagonist is your client, not the lawyer. Yeah. And you have to teach the protagonist what their lines are. But you can't tell them what their lines are. They have to find their own lines by writing their story. So I always have my clients write their biography for me. And then you can key and in so on... when they get to the point where they're talking in court about what it is that made them leave their country, they're able to summon up, even if they don't tell the entire story, they bring it with them, what happened to them in their country that made them leave, which is what the hearing is about. Mm-hmm. That's all it's about. The, you know, the, the judge doesn't really care about anything else except why did you leave? Why can't you come back? Those mm-hmm. are the two questions. But in order to give it life... They have to bring their whole life with them. And usually they don't want to bring their whole life with them. They want to bury their life. Yeah. They don't want to remember that they were raped, that they were incested, that they were tortured, on and on. You know, they want to put that in a box with a nail on it. Yeah, of course. So to give them the courage to bring that out is hard because even if they tell everything, as brought out in the movie. Yeah. Like the uncle so sensitively brought out. Even if he told someone he was raped, that doesn't mean he's going to get asylum. And then everybody knows. Yeah. Which is horrible. Yeah, I mean, you you have to expose the worst part of yourself. Or not the worst part of yourself, but the part that you... That you're most ashamed yes, of. Yes, the most shameful part. Even that sounds wrong, though, isn't it? Because it's not shameful to be a victim. It's but they the shame are ashamed. that you carry with you. All these people are horribly ashamed. And the movie brings that out beautifully because... The girl doesn't want anyone in her life to know that she's been raped. Yeah, because of course she wouldn't. Why um, would she? You know, this is a fictionalized character in the movie. In the real story, the real woman was married and had children. She didn't want that husband to know she'd been raped. Oh, I mean, she... that would be like end her marriage immediately, regardless. In that culture, that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. What happened? I mean, how did, how did that... You Somehow know, we managed. I can't really, you know, there's something called attorney-client Of course, privilege. yeah. But, but it's something you have to be conscious of. As yeah, a, you can't really let the person's life after the case get worse than it was before. Yeah. And sometimes that happens. For instance, I had a Japanese client once come to my office. And there's a lot of child abuse in that country. A lot of her, it's not, it somehow hasn't met the American or Canadian press yet. But there's an amazing amount of very serious child abuse. And this woman came to my office, and I, very quickly into the conversation, I realized that she'd been incested, and incested by her mother, which is really traumatic. And I, the minute I suggested to that to her, she went into a full-blown psychotic breakdown and wound up in a hospital. So you have to be very careful, because sometimes the person leaves you in a worse state than they walked in the room. Yeah. And you don't want to win someone's case and ruin their life. No, the responsibility is terrifying. I mean, the way you're describing it. It really is. I mean, because you really are holding holding them in your hands, their future. When they win asylum, it opens up a whole life for them. It means they can bring their family here. They can bring their children here. They can bring their spouses here. They can become a citizen. You don't want to mess that up. So just to give you an example of one of these cases, um, this guy that was my client from a South Asian country had been um, sodomized 
And that is something that no one wants anyone to know about. Mm. Women aren't the only people sure. that are raped. Men are raped. Yep. Not that women are proud of it if they're raped, but for a man it's like, uh, you know, well, I mean, really the, bad thing. The film deals so with it So the day right? before the trial, he called me. He said, I have to talk to you. It was a Sunday night. I went and met him. He told me. Eventually we won the case. But, you know, he did not want anyone to know that. We had been working on his case for several years before he came out with that. And, you know, it was like really sensitive because he was going to be saying this with people in the room, the judge, the translator, the therapist, me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a horrible invasion all over again of of the person, of the, of the memory, of the story. It's such an invasion of privacy. Yeah. Oh. So, I mean, did that story work out? Did that case yes, go well? Yes, he was able to become a citizen. He brought his children here. His whole family were able to get asylum. And it did work out. A lot of them do work out. Yeah. Well, as you say, if you, if you, it would destroy you if they didn't. But. but now, it's much harder. Because the judges basically have instructions not to grant anything. Yeah. I mean, you can still win. I still win. But it's harder. Because the judges are being told not to grant. And they get chastised if you win on appeal. The judges get graded. They get graded now. So how can you function as a judge when you know if you grant, you're going to be demoted? Reverse quotas. Great. And it's enough, though, that you can keep fighting, that you can keep doing it. Well, the thing is, I have this role now, St. Judy, so I have to keep doing it. Sure. (laughs) One thing about the movie is that uh, she doesn't really have a sense of humor. I do. Okay. And I always say to people, you know, don't lose your sense of humor or you'll go so crazy mad doing this job. You really have to keep the, your sense of humor going on, regardless. Yeah, I can ima- I can only imagine. Um, and, and yeah, to that end, there's not a lot of humor in, in vis-a-vis either, but is there anything from the film that you use or, or borrow or steal? Well, I remember her walking through this hall of mirrors. She was walking down a hall, and there were all these mirrors. And she was looking at herself in these mirrors, realizing that she could be any one of these images. Mm-hmm. And I decided you could be any image you choose. You don't have to be the image that you were born with. That's good. You can reinvent yourself successfully. Unfortunately, she didn't meet with success. Maybe she will in another life. Yeah, that would be, that would be good. I mean, it, it sounds like you've managed it. Yeah. <laughs> the Uta Hagen thing is just wearing on my head. It's melting me. That's amazing. Good teacher. No kidding. Brilliant woman. My thanks to Judy Wood, who's back in Los Angeles fighting the good fight against an increasingly callous system, as dramatized in St. Judy, which is now available for rental and purchase on iTunes and most other digital platforms, including Hoopla. And thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. I did botch the Jack Layton quote, by the way. It's, love is better than anger, hope is better than fear. I really want to believe that. You can find Judy on Twitter at JudithWood underscore law, and you can find Vive Savi in a fine Blu-ray and DVD special edition from the Criterion Collection and streaming on the Criterion channel. It's also available on Canopy in the U.S. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.